This is Science Moab, a radio show exploring the science and learning about the scientists from the Colorado Plateau. I'm Christina, and on today's show, we explore the role of chemical compounds in plants and how they shape the ecology we see around us. It's a good show. Stay with us. Chemicals float through the water in the sea. Chemicals are our atmosphere. It is the substrate with which we breathe. Like oxygen itself is a chemical. And so chemical ecology is the hormonal exchange or the pheromone scenting, like a wolf tracking down prey. Or it is in all food webs, in all organisms, and so unexplored in so many ways. Today on Science Moab, we explore a field called chemical ecology with Dr. Adrian Godshocks. Dr. Godshocks grew up here in Moab and went on to get her PhD in Oregon and is now doing her postdoctoral research in Switzerland. There she researches chemical ecology, which explores how the chemical compounds that regulate living things go on to influence the ecosystems we see around us. Here we explore the many and incredible ways that chemical compounds work to defend plants and what chemical ecology can teach us about the deserts around Moab. We begin with Dr. Godshocks answering the basic question, what is a chemical? It is essentially an atom that includes the positive, the negative, the neutral. So hydrogen itself is a chemical. So hydrogen is one electron, one proton. Right? So when they are not together, that's when you get all sorts of pH and electron flow and you get charges and there's so much that an electrical gradient drives in the way that we, what allows us to be alive. And I read in, in a book somewhere that we're not alive or able to be alive because things interact, but because they barely interact. You study chemical ecology. Yes. Can you describe what that is? So I like to describe chemical ecology as the way that the scents and the uh, compounds that do all of the regulating in every living being can influence a one organism's decision that can then scale up to ecosystem-wide processes. You mostly look at chemical ecology in plants. Yes. When I hear chemicals in plants, I think about maybe defensive mechanisms or something specific like that, but can you kind of paint me a picture of the breadth of chemical interactions that plants are having with their environment? Yes. I think there's a misconception in what we understand a chemical to be, because even a sugar molecule is a chemical, technically. So uh, we have had negative encounters with plant chemistry. If you walk into poison oak and you have that itchy rash that is your skin reacting to that chemical that the plant has produced to prevent things from eating it. But of course, all of the things that also provide us nutrients, the reason that we have to eat kale to be healthy, all of those awesome reasons that we love plants are also because of their chemistry and their uh, chemical makeup, it, which is where we build our nutrition. So everything, every decision that we make with food comes down to essentially our food's chemistry and what it tastes like or does not taste like. If Do you like spicy food? 
I do. Yes. So that is a decision based on the plant's chemical secondary metabolism, they call it. Chemicals influencing organisms making decisions that then contribute to a bigger process. So whether that is in evolution or in protecting crops or just understanding food webs for the sake of understanding them, that is the the goal. What kinds of attacks do plants need to defend themselves from? There are many, many things that are after a plant because they are the base of the food web by being able to convert sunlight into food. They are attacked by fungi and insects and mammals and us. So the challenge with plants being under attack is that the different attackers have different modes of getting in. So a fungal pathogen will trigger a specific set of hormones. Plants have these chemicals flowing through their cells that can communicate. But what's more effective than flowing through cells is essentially flying through the air. So if you're a tree and one branch is being attacked and the caterpillar is likely to maybe crawl to the leaf below, it's far more effective for those plants to be able to release compounds into the air and essentially transmit that chemical by the air as a scent instead of going through its vein system. So in that way, there is this self-preparing. And and back in the day when we first discovered that plants could communicate by volatiles, it was initially thought that plants were warning each other against attack. Like, oh my gosh, these trees are talking to each other. And of course, we don't know enough to know for sure that that is not absolutely happening. However, we do know also that plants are very sensitive to their own signals and that They can be limited by the architecture of their veins to keep that signal from getting to every potential leaf. And so going through the air is a far more effective way. The different attackers that a plant can experience will trigger different hormonal cascades. And there are two main ones that the chemical ecologists will talk about in regards to plant defense is the salicylic acid. That compound is associated with fungal pathogen infection. And so plants make that, but if they get attacked by a chewing herbivore that will grind up their leaves, they will typically, although we know many exceptions, just like everything else in ecology, uh, they will typically induce another hormone, the jasminate pathway or jasmonic acid, which inhibits the salicylic acid pathway. And so in this way, there's this crosstalk where a plant cannot be equally prepared to respond to a fungi and a chewing insect at the same time. So there's almost this strategy divergence that happens. And so one of the key questions is that below ground, we can't see as much because it's all in the dark. It's all below ground. And so if something is chewing on the roots, does that make the leaves respond differently to its environment and the sunlight and the water and the and the slugs and the insects and fungi and all of the interacting things that make a plant respond as it does? Does every plant have chemical defenses? My answer off the bat is yes. And the reason for that is that some of the compounds that allow it to just stand up are also considered chemical defenses. So lignin that in a in a woody shrub in the sagebrush that allows it to like grow all knobby, that is itself a phenolic compound that is a kind of a crazy compound. It can be one connected molecule from the base of the root all the way up to the tip of the shoot it can be in some trees it's even that way and so the lignin and phenolics are a pretty crazy compound it's also why phenolics or tannins you may have heard of in wine um, they can be 
an effective defense because they do link together in such a way and build this like essentially quarantine against certain things like fungal pathogens from getting inside of a cell. Um, but they are often known as a quantitative defense. So the more that an herbivore will consume, the more it becomes toxic or poisonous. Uh, whereas certain things can be qualitatively poisonous, such as cyanide. It doesn't really matter how much of it I give to you. Why do some plants have more chemical defenses than others? That is one of the key questions. And not only why do some plants have more than others, why do they have such a diverse suite of them? Why can some plants produce things from sulfur in the flavor of garlic or in um, arugula, that bite on your tongue? The variation in the smell of sagebrush to the compound in Mormon tea that makes it taste the way it does. I mean, even compounds that give plant color can be secondary metabolites as well. So anthocyanin, oftentimes you'll see that reddish tint that is considered secondary metabolism. There's a lot of work trying to unpack whether these compounds are playing a role as just purely against herbivores from consuming them, or rather protecting the plant from the other stress that it deals with, like being in the sunshine all day or drought stress. And we know for sure that some of these compounds act as shock absorbers against like UV radiation. And there's always generally more than one role that certain compounds can have. So even cyanide that I told you about, there's a hypothesis that it could be a storage molecule for nitrogen, that the plant is just storing it in that form. So that way it also works kind of like a glow stick where when the herbivore chews it, it cracks the compounds mix and the enzyme will cut off the sugar and there you go, you have free cyanide. But in there is a bunch of nitrogen and so it can move it around from cell to cell, maybe in that form without being toxic to itself. So it's not just like a clear relationship between if a plant evolved with something attacking it, it's going to have more chemical defenses. There are many cases of that as well. The classic coevolution where the butterflies will eat the plants and the plants will then produce more poisonous or higher concentration or different compounds. And then the caterpillar develops a way to store that and make themselves toxic. So there's a lot of that going on almost everywhere in nature, which is beautiful. But it's cool to think that it's more complicated. Right, exactly. The key question of why did they get there in the first place, how did they evolve, is in some cases pretty clear that it was from the pressure of being under attack constantly by everything under the sun that wants to be able to survive because plants are essentially, again, the base of the food web. But some of these compounds may have arisen through tolerance to abiotic stress. So it's, it's fun in that way. And also then, once it does exist, how the variation can change. So the work that I'm currently doing looks at the way that a flower can smell different in different regions in order to possibly attract a different pollinator. That's one of our hypotheses. Or maybe it's just geographic variation and, and different genetic genotype underpinning, and that it could be a somewhat random, although has a layer of not being random at all. Are there certain ecosystems or areas where plants have more chemical defenses? There are a few groups looking at certain places like hot spots of biodiversity to see how the species richness and chemical richness in a system interplay. And I believe, I haven't 
looked into that anytime recently, but my latest understanding of that is that, yes, there is a strong correlation with biotic pressure and the diversity of herbivores and the diversity of chemical responses in especially, of course, the tropics where there is many interesting secondary metabolites and we need to save save the rainforest in order to find a cure for cancer and all of that classic story, right? It's It's not wrong because there is such a diversity of plant metabolism in order to survive. So you mentioned abiotic factors and how they're influencing plants. Here in Moab and on Colorado Plateau, we maybe have less biotic interactions than somewhere in the tropics, but we have a ton of abiotic pressure. And so could you describe maybe what you would expect the chemical ecology of our desert is? Yes. I am thrilled to return home and see and smell my desert in a whole new way just because it is not in the middle of the tropics where it is the most biodiverse area it's under some pretty crazy intense stress life typically tries to continue living the author of one of my favorite books called lab girl her name's hope jaren she's an incredible professor she likes to say that the plants in the desert are not there because they love the desert but because the desert hasn't killed them yet and so their capacity to be able to survive those conditions has created a fascinating chemical landscape. So sagebrush itself is maybe an icon of chemical ecology. It is one of the better studied ones because it is so chemically interesting. I mean, you don't even have to touch it to know that sagebrush is there, that you can be out on the trail and suddenly smell this plant, which is familiar. And if you're traveling out of town and you smell it, then I personally, it always brings me home. And I have this moment where I can feel the hot sand and see the lizards scurrying. And there's something about that capacity for chemicals to tap into our memory center that makes them so interesting and effective as information carriers. In thinking about getting back to your question, whether the desert has more or less It's different, and I would say it's more concentrated, partly because these secondary metabolites do play a role in conferring abiotic stress. Does the fact that a plant is making chemicals always help the plant? A plant makes the chemicals that it is programmed to make by its genes and also cued to make by the hormonal processes within or that it receives and the signals that it receives externally. And so oftentimes if a genotype, a specific plant with its own specific set of genes is programmed to make a high amount of a very relatively expensive, so using those uh, nutrient-rich compounds like nitrogen, for a high level of defense compounds that may not be useful actually for growing, there's a huge trade-off there. And it's not synergistic always in success. And so sometimes these plants will grow shorter or make fewer seeds because they're using their energy and they still have their own economy to balance and figure out. But when there are herbivores in the system that would attack and kill their neighbors of, that have a slightly different set of genes that have slightly less of that compound, then they would be better fit to reproduce and make, make a living. However, if their competitors don't have that pressure, then they can su- succeed and do better. And so I get this question often about 
how to make plants more effective and better at responding to stress and specifically with nitrogen fixing bacteria how do we take that skill and and help other plants do that and it's hard to say what is good and bad for food production yes we want healthy nutritious food and we want enough of it to sustain a population yes for ecology it's hard to say what is better than something else because there could be a pressure from a fungi in that area that if the plants make more of one compound that maybe they're less able to respond to them through a trade-off that we haven't fully understood. So I always like to say that life is a series of trade-offs. How do you study chemical ecology? I personally do it by collecting the air surrounding a plant and hooking up a pump and having some substrate that is really good at grabbing the compounds out of the air and pulling air over that substrate. And so the mint smells, the lemon scent, the sage scent, all of that will get stuck to this substance that I have in a a little glass vial. And as the air flows over it, it gets pulled. And then I put that into a big oven. The compounds then get heated up and sent through this column. And however heavy or light they are, We can figure that out based on how long it takes them to fly through this column. And you can also do similar things with chemicals that are in the leaves or there's a lot of work being done on um, mammal uh, excretions and they do some pregnancy information on elephants by their uh, urine and their feces. And so there's a lot of behavioral work in monkeys that you can figure out based on their hormonal properties. Again, chemical ecology can be extracted from nature in almost any substance. It can be whatever's in the air, whatever's in the tissue, whatever's in the soil, whatever's in the water. Take any of those parts of nature and essentially run the chemistry of what is there. Typically, a classic chemical ecology study will find the main differences between the control and the treatment. So, for example, an herbivore-attacked plant is emitting a lot of this one compound, and then we take that compound and we can buy it from the chemical stores, and and then we can see if the bugs that we know react to that chemical in nature, if they actually show the same reaction in the lab, and just to verify that, yes, this is the chemical. And then we can take that insect's antenna and hook it up to an electroanteniogram that detects the signal that if that insect is able to sense that compound, that it will like zzz on the screen. Now that you have all of this knowledge and you yes. come back home to the desert that you grew up in, what is your experience being out there? When I am exploring the our desert, now I, I'm surprised how much I pay attention to the insects and For the longest time, I would only look at the plants, right? And that's where the chemistry is. But yet, the things that are paying attention to the chemistry that are so much more olfactory attuned, so like sensitive to to their particular chemistry, are the insects. And so paying attention to where they are and what they're doing and who's eating what. and, And also, what is it? Like, it has wings, but does that mean it's a wasp? Is it an ant? Is it an aphid? Like, there are so many different things that all look the same that are very, I mean, they don't look the same once you're an entomologist, but I consider myself, I came from a loving plants to then becoming a backdoor entomologist and a backdoor chemist. And so it's so much fun to expand 
I'm constantly delighted by the things that never used to grab me before. So when I'm here, I, that's the kind of stuff that I'm excited by. I have a few Google Scholar alerts set for the, some of the local scientists here in Moab, and I, there is some brilliant work happening locally. I have this fun experience, too, that I grew up and learned Mormon tea and rice grass and all of the names that a you know, fourth grader learns on field trips. But when I, you know... Google the Latin names, I see their images. I'm like, wow, I know that. That's my familiar face. And so that's a really cool experience to now understand both the Latin name and the the face of the plant and also then be able to interpret the deeper ecology that's happening here. Um, particularly the biological soil crust, there's some really cool stuff happening with that. So the, the local sciences, I'm constantly impressed. What first got you interested in chemical ecology? Originally, growing up in Moab, I was outside all of the time. And then my mom uh, moved to Portland. And so I was doing high school in Portland and in the city. And I didn't, I mean, I was a nervous teenager that didn't know where I belong, who I was and all of that. And so then my friend of mine in health class had just come back from this program called Outdoor School where she got to spend some time in the forest. And I was like, yes, get me back outside. And so I was like, I can tolerate spending time with sixth graders and teach them whatever. That's fine. I can do that. But in this program, the structure of it is the sixth graders spend a week in the forest with their science teacher in their class, along with four other classes from anywhere in the metropolitan area. And they get to make new friends and live in the cabin. And high school kids are their counselors and their teachers during the day. So I was on water field study and I taught about the dissolved oxygen content in the water and water quality and how streams flow. But I didn't know any of that going in. I was, and again, just this high school nerd that just wanted to be outside in the forest. Suddenly then I had this group of sixth grade kids that were amazed that they could understand how the trees and the water and, and erosion all interact. And one girl turned to me, she said, I didn't know that I could understand all of this. And like had this look in her eye that just felt like the way that I look at the beauty in the world. And it was in that moment that I not only built my own self-confidence out of that, but realized what I wanted to do for the rest of my life, which is lucky in high school. And I'm grateful. Um, and what do you enjoy about being a scientist? Goodness, that's great. I get to think for a living. I get to study the beauty in this world like it's my job <laughs> I get to ask questions I get to be curious although I would say that that is also my biggest challenge personally is that I have the freedom to to ask any question to discover I have the freedom to think about what do we not understand about this yet what is there still to discover which, no big deal, just go outside and discover something. Why not? So there's, of course, the pressure to be able to survive and make it in, in science, which is helpful because I do better when I'm challenged, but also gets kind of in the way of the point of just being in the question, living in the question, and, and smelling the sagebrush, following it, and looking at what is eating this thing? What does the flower smell different from the leaf? Well, thank you so much for this interview. It's been super fun to talk to you about all thank this you. stuff. Thank you. This is delightful. 
Theme music for our show is by Jeremy Spaulding. Funding is provided by BYU's Charles Red Center for Western Studies. And the show is produced by Christina Young and KZMU. Thank you.